It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. As always, I am here in the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce and as always, I'm joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hiya. This week, we're going to look forward to what round two has to offer, talk a little bit about atomic energy, and then a cabinet split. But before any of that, thank you so much for getting in touch with us, whether it be over Twitter or leaving us a review on iTunes. It really is appreciated. If you like what you hear, please go on, uh, leave us a rating, and uh, yes, get, get in contact with us. Right, round one is over. Round two is about to begin. Why don't one of you just summarise what we've seen in, in, in round one and what we've got to look forward to in round two? Uh, I think the simple answer to what we saw in round one was not a lot. Um, I think round one mainly were about setting up the kind of frameworks for the future talks uh, rather than getting down to the, the, the real details and the business of it. But the one thing which uh, definitely came out of round one was the uh, the bill which we put forward on citizens' rights, which as uh, we spoke about uh, in a previous podcast was kind of thrown back in our faces and we were told it, it's not good enough. Um, but apart from that, round the round one of the talks, really, we didn't hear much news uh, around what was discussed. It, it must really have just been kind of uh, an administrative first meeting. Um, as for round two, I guess really it's, it's the same things which we were expecting to get them, for them to get started to on, uh, in, in round one. So this, the issue of citizens' rights needs, still needs to be figured out. Uh, they want to talk about the, the divorce bill. Um, potentially the, re- the repayments that we're going to have to make to the EU. Uh, and then I think the third thing which they really want to get off the table quickly is the uh, the matter of the Irish border. And so I think those are the things which are going to be on the agenda. But uh, David Davis was in Brussels recently to kick off the talks, but everything else that we've heard since then, again, is that uh, we're going to have to perhaps wait a substantial amount of time before any progress gets made on any of these things. Yeah, it's like waiting for something to happen continually. You vote out, nothing happens. Article 50 happens, nothing happens. Round one of the talks happens, nothing happens. So what's going to happen in round two of the talks? Well, I mean, as, as Alex said, I think that we've got the, those key bits. We know from, as always, of course, you know, we've talked throughout this entire process, the place to go for information is the EU, not our own government, because they're actually being open and honest about what they want to talk about. 
so Michel Barnier was, uh, was very clear. Remember, he's the EU's uh, chief negotiator in all this. Uh, and it's those three aspects, citizens' rights, uh, what the uh, divorce bill is going to be, and, uh, and getting moving on the Irish border, which you know, we've maintained really since the very beginning, is probably the single hardest part uh, of all this, depending on how other things uh, pan out. So I think it kind of goes to the heart, and you said we'll, we'll talk about the cabinet split stuff uh, later, but you know, we, saw, we saw David Davis and the rest of the team head over to, uh, to Brussels uh, on Monday of this week, um, he sat around for a morning, had a bit of a chat, and then hopped on the train back to London. Um, I kind of question what he thinks is uh, more important at the minute uh, that he had to do as opposed to being there. But it's you know it's about kind of managing the media, and we've we, you know the government is not good at this on everything. It's been singularly bad on the Brexit stuff, you know. So you know, social media was rife yesterday with the picture of the uh, the EU negotiators on one side of the yep. table with files galore for everything they need to talk about, uh, and David Davis and our team sat on the other side with nothing in front of them, just grinning away. Um, and of course, that's facile, and it doesn't. This stuff doesn't really matter. No. Um, but if you can't kind of do basic media management, then I do worry about the ability to go into you know the single most complex set of talks we've seen in a generation or more. It is quite funny to think actually that people who look at that picture might actually believe that on the one hand a small a small amount of papers on the EU side would constitute the entire EU negotiating position but also that they bought that David Davis bought two civil servants with him and they just didn't bring any papers <laughs> as if they're just gonna have a chat and a handshake and go home. Yeah no, exactly we, we, we know things are better than that we know the situation <laughs> within government's position isn't uh, isn't ideal at this stage but yes okay we have you know there is stuff to go on and I'm you know certainly you know, the conversation with civil service suggests they're getting there their ducks in a row pretty well. I think you know our our worries over confidence here are still at the political level. Um, you know that you can feed in. We all know it from our own life in companies. You're the people lower down the tree can have all the ideas and all the things you need to do, uh, but if the board isn't taking decisions, um, then it's uh, it's very hard to move anything forward. Well, we'll move on to the politics in a second, but the word on everyone's lips is uratum. Yeah, who'd have thought? Yeah, <laughs> what is uratum? Euratom is the uh, European, uh, essentially the regulator for the nuclear industry across Europe. So it's the European Atomic Energy Community, essentially. Um, And they regulate all sorts of things. Uh, So they safeguard, for example, the transport of nuclear materials, disposal of nuclear waste. Um, They're also in charge of coordinating uh, nuclear research uh, across the EU, too. Um, and this is one of the things, unfortunately, where it seems like we were forced into a position uh, before we could take any kind of assessment of what it would mean. So, uh, Uratom was mentioned specifically in our Article 50 withdrawal letter. And it was done so essentially because it was assumed that in terms of the law and in terms of the way that the treaties work, that we have to leave Uratom as part of leaving the EU. Unfortunately, it has since uh, come out from government that no one really looked into what the implications of this would be. And it turns out that there are some pretty big ones, given that we are essentially almost a world leader in this industry. Um, So, I mean, obviously, we've got things like the the new planet Hinkley Point, which is a massive cooperation project between us and France. Euratom are going to have a massive involvement with that going forward. Um, we've also got Sellafield, which I think is the largest store of civil plutonium on Earth, I believe. Yep. Is that right? right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and again, Euratom run the laboratories there and things like that. There's, there's been talk over the transportation of medical isotopes, which are used in cancer treatment. 
and whether uh, us falling out of your atom is going to affect the, uh, the travel of those across borders. Um, and finally, the other one is, is essentially just the cooperation on, on the nuclear research. So one part of your atom that it, is that it ensures the free movement of scientists in the field. So we have tons and tons of scientists all over Europe working on various research projects, all coordinated by Euratom. And what happens to all those scientists and their status and the status of those projects and our ongoing cooperation is basically completely up in the air and no one really knows uh, what's going to happen if we fall out of this thing. Um, so essentially I think the reason that this was done was because um, no non-EU country is a full member of Euratom. And so it was assumed, I think correctly, that as, as part of us leaving the EU, we, we would naturally fall out of it. Uh, there are ways for us to maintain a, a connection and for there to be some kind of associate membership. So I think there are a number of countries, um, I, I'm not actually sure off the top of my head, but I'm guessing Switzerland, Norway, I know... It's actually uh, just Switzerland. Uh, yeah, right. Switzerland's the only associate member. I think there are others involved, though. Aren't Australia have, have some, some kind of associate there, membership? There may, be, there may be some kind of uh, connectivity between the two, but in terms, of formal, in terms of formal associate membership, it's just Switzerland. So the EU28 uh, plus Switzerland. Yeah, um, and so it's looking like uh, we're going to have to do this through uh, another agency, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency. Um, so we'll be reporting to them instead of Euratom. But at this point, I think there are options on the table for us to mitigate some of the risks. But unfortunately, it's just another one of those areas. I mean, we've had a bunch of them over the past few months, you know, uh, skies policy, uh, fisheries, medicines, uh, it's just another one of these areas where we haven't, it doesn't seem like we've taken the time to really figure out what the implications are before we kind of pulled the trigger. Mm. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, to be honest, that there's going to be a number of, of these areas coming out over the next few months as people start to realise the implications of, of what we're doing here. Well, I do have a question on this, but before I do, just one of these interesting little factoids. Uh, a client of ours was actually a uh, he had a PhD up in Sellafield, and one of the main concerns they had is what markings do you use to denote something is dangerous in the case of in the entire civilization being wiped out and the new civilization finding these crates of plutonium? And that's actually one of the thing, things that they're working on. Yeah, that's it. You're, you're, looking, you're looking at storing waste, which isn't going to be safe for a couple of hundred thousand years. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the, the longevity of this stuff is really important. Uh, so I guess the point about your atom is why leave? Is it just a legal thing that we have to leave? Because it does sound like the sort of organisation that cross-country cooperation would be very valuable in. Yeah, um, why leave? It's, it's a good question. I think the, the, David Davis said the reason why this was done was because it was seen as absolutely necessary. Um, and also, uh, I think the big point is that it kind of crosses the red line of ECJ uh, jurisdiction, which is one of the big red lines for the Tory party that we have to come out of the... Uh, come out of the remit of the ECJ. So uh, according to current Euratom rules, uh, you would be subjected to ECJ judges and courts, um, uh, you know, what, involving anything that's to do with uh, that treaty. And at this point, the government is set upon this idea that we have to be totally free from the ECJ. And it's not clear how we can be involved with Euratom uh, without being involved with the ECJ in, in some format. So why, sorry, just to explain that to me again. They need to leave Euratom because that is overseen by the ECJ. Is that how, how I should read this? So there's two, two aspects. So the, 
So the, the Euratom goes back a long way. It's, it dates from the time of the Rome Treaty in 1957, at mm-hmm. the very, very earliest stages of the European Economic Community, as it popped out of what was the, you know, the European coal and steel uh, community. So it dates back a very long way. And like everything else that's happened with the then uh, EEC and now the EU, at each big treaty revision, so particularly Maastricht in 1992, but then even more so with the Lisbon Treaty in 2006-2007, which consolidated all the varying bits of the EEC that had popped up over the previous 50 years into one place. So essentially the Euratom, whilst it's still technically a totally separate legal structure um, from uh, from the EU, it's inherent within the treaties of the EU. And there's a clause within the Euratom Treaty that got absorbed into, into Lisbon in 2007 that a notification under Article 50 to leave the Treaty of the European Union also withdraws a member state from Euratom. So uh. first, it's implicit, at least, in the, in the treaties. Secondly, of course, Theresa May specifically referred to leaving Euratom in the Article 50 letter uh, that we sent off to the EU uh, back in March early this year. So there's two aspects. One, we were going to go anyway. Um, as I said there is no. It is an EU. It is an EU body. Therefore, by leaving the EU, you fall out of it. And secondly, for you know, or thirdly, really, for final kind of confirmation, uh, it was explicit in the in the notification letter itself. But I think all of this kind of just rails back really to this tension that we've had inevitably since the referendum decision. This nice, easy binary choice, in or out. And then the reality of kind of where government, and not even government policy, you know, people are ma- somehow Labour is managing to get away with quite a lot in all of this debate at the minute. Um, you know, it was expected to do disastrously in the election. Jeremy Corbyn was going to flatten the party and it was all just going to go to the hard left and it would fall apart. That more positive result than they expected is kind of allowing them to get away with not having their policies scrutinised. So lots of people are saying about, oh, well, you know, there's some polling done the last few days which shows 80% of Labour members would prefer to stay in the single market than the customs union. And there appears to be traction in the media that somehow there's a difference, a serious difference in policy between the, between the Conservative government and the Labour opposition on, on the withdrawal from the EU, when actually you can't get a fag paper between them. They're both in the position of leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. Individual voices within Labour certainly are putting for a much softer uh, position on you know wanting to retain membership of the single market, perfectly plausible. Uh, also wanting to retain membership of the customs union, not plausible. Um, the treaties are very, very clear. If you leave the EU, you leave the EU customs union. Uh, so staying in the customs union is not an option, as much as Chukar and Munna keep saying it is. Um, and of course, you know, we see endlessly in the news because the focus is on the cabinet, quite rightly so, uh, that the cabinet itself does not have anything close to a single position on what it wants out of this. So the referendum said leave. Theresa May gave her Lancaster House uh, speech back in January, which said outside all jurisdiction of the ECJ, outside single market, some form of bespoke customs agreement, uh, but fundamentally we're going. Um, and it's, all, it's that that you know, we now go, oh, actually, we've not done any assessment on that. We've not actually worked out how that's going to work. We don't know what the impacts are. And it, frankly, this is negligent in the extreme. It's, uh, it's, it's representative, isn't it, of, of how much we kind of underestimated the scale of the things that this would affect um, before the referendum vote, certainly. Um, because the government's got this job now of trying to interpret exactly what was meant by the vote um, and it's it's already becoming quite clear that really the position that the government's taken is pleasing hardly anyone in this. Um, I mean, you basically maybe not even the hard Brexiteers uh, would be confident in the in the current strategy. And so the government's trying to juggle all these different kind of things that people might have wanted out of this and all the reasons that people might have done it. 
but they're really not doing a great job. Um, I mean, it, it, I guess representative of that is the fact that Dominic Cummings, who was the the kind of arch architect of Vote Leave and that whole campaign, um, come out and criticised, I think, what he called government morons for the decision to come out of your atom. Um, and he's now suggesting on, on Twitter that they never saw ECJ jurisdiction as a particular issue um, and that Euratom shouldn't, should, should, should have been something which we, we aim to stay part of um, for this entire thing. But then if he sees the ECJ as not being too much of a problem, how does that square with the whole you know, taking back control and regaining sovereignty over our own laws side of it? And so the government's got this really, really, really tricky position of taking you know, what was just a binary choice on a piece of paper and then trying to interpret what everybody was, was, was intending by... by by ticking that particular box. And I think the evidence that we've got at the minute is that kind of everyone on every side is not really happy with the way that things are going at the minute. No, and I think I think there's a, there's a, a kind of a higher level challenge with this concept of the ECJ. I mean, the British press has done a pretty good job over the past 40 or 50 years of kind of saying a, a general tone of dissent um, around the EU and all, and all that there is to do with it. A lot of the Leave side, or certainly a lot of the noise of the Leave side, is kind of talks about us leaving the EU in the way that you know we can regain, if not the glories of empire, then at least some of those you know happy strong days and white heat of technology of the uh, of the fifties and sixties, without kind of any acknowledgement that the world has moved on significantly to that point. You know the the, the birth of globalization and the you know, the increase of internationalism, um, the you know in your complex interconnected global supply chains across all industries. The way that regulation is done, increasingly at a global level, means actually as soon as anything happens between two borders, you have to acknowledge that there now needs to be a higher authority which is going to oversee that. You know, we see that in, in law and in business transactions. Often it will be English law because actually English case law is, is, is rightly regarded as the finest in the world. So when a deal is done between two countries, you have to decide who will arbitrate on that deal. Um, you know, if we were buying a company in France, we would probably say this will sit under the European system and the Royal Courts of Justice will be the final arbiter uh, of that legal condition. We can come out of the EU, we can walk away from the ECJ, but there will undoubtedly be a trade deal of some sort between the UK and the EU, and somebody is going to sit, have to sit over that uh, and, and make sure that it's, uh, it's being policed and that, and that uh, you know, restitution of, uh, for cases of disagreement can be brought somewhere. We might well come out of the ECJ, but there will still be a court over us. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where you know the narrative from that hard leave side, the very vocal part of the hard leave, misses this. There are always going to be bodies above us who will A, impose regulation, and we'll take it because, it, frankly, it's for the better, it's for the better all around. Um, and that somebody's got to be in that position. And this idea that somehow we can just paint, oh, we don't want the ECJ, and therefore it'll go away and the UK will be sovereign. It's like, well, if you want to send anything across any border, you give up sovereignty. Mm. You know, this is this trade-off that business has increasingly got its head around in the past 10 or 15 years between competition and collaboration. You give away some of your own power to get part of a bigger pie. Um, you know, we see companies in JVs routinely, you know, companies that are, will be working together in a JV, but actually competing against each other in other aspects. That's kind of cool, but there's got to be there's just got to be a realisation that there need to be courts above nation-states. Is Euratom going to be repeated across numerous other agencies which they just haven't thought of? And is this, is this a symptom of just how integrated the, the EU is? I, I guess, 
I guess it's asking. It's, I guess it's like me giving you a cake and asking you to remove all of the egg. It's it, 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 that's actually an extremely good analogy. <laughs> uh, I think yeah, go and unmake the omelette. Yeah, um, and I think it's th- there, there's not really been much acceptance of what has happened in the latter stages of the EU. Um, so again, there's all of this kind of hark back to to what the world was like when we when we you know, tried to join twice and were turned down and were finally let in on the third attempt. That this is a trade. This is just a trade deal with a couple of associated things. Certainly, it was back then. Um, you know, I guess from the Leavers point of view, the lot, the big loss of sovereignty probably arrived with the Single European Act in eighty five. I think eighty five or eighty six, which is where you went from any country having veto rights over anything the EU does to qualified majority voting. Uh, so essentially, from our perspective, the UK could be overruled by by other members, uh, which does take a lot of sovereignty away. But also, you know, the bigger your committee gets, the less and less useful vetoes are because mm. you're never going to move anything forward. Then the big, big change at Maastricht, uh, which was the full delivery, really, of the uh, of the single market, and then the tying of all the treaties together across you know, Amsterdam, Nice, and then Lisbon in the end, is it's not that we've got a layer of EU law that kind of sits in a separate pillar on our book that we take away. It's everything that the EU has been working on within the EU itself to grow it and develop it, and you know, particularly in terms of uh, bringing forward the single market realisations. But then in its deals with other third countries around the world, is all of that is utterly entwined into not only our legislative structures uh, you know, and, the, and the laws and regulations that the UK runs by, but also by the way now society and business has grown up with those things. So people say, oh, well, you know, the supply chains are integrated. They didn't used to be. It's like, no, they didn't used to be, but they now are. And entire global structures are now set up on the basis of that. So you can't just pull one block out of the Jenga tower um, and expect it all to stay stream. So you know, someone made a great comment a couple of weeks ago on the on one of the big blogs on this. He said, "We're essentially giving birth to a new country." Hmm. You know, so entwined is that is all of this stuff. This is forty-seven years of slow, slow integration. You see, what the UK is going to have to go through now will be, would be very, very similar to what Scotland would have to go through uh, if it went for independence. All of a sudden, the legal structures, the laws, the courts, the regulator agencies, of which I think there are 38, so we're talking about Euratom here, that's only one of 38 um, regulatory institutions, the European Medical Association, the, uh, the um, agricultural standards, um, aerospace standards, etc., etc. There's a body for all of these things. All of these are now going to have to be replicated or we stay with the ones we've already got. The ones we've already got are seen overseen by the ECJ. Yes, theoretically, you could spin up new independent courts to arbitrate those, but frankly, with everything that's going on, why would you bother? Uh, okay, so I've, I've actually got a load of questions about this now. <laughs> this so, is the problem with the whole of this concept, that everything yeah. just spawns another, uh, a whole other layer. So I'll, I'll go with the political one first, which is, uh, and let's just keep this one really brief, but... If I was a hard lever, if, I, um, if I'm a Nigel Farage type and uh, this is all I've ever wanted, is this not sort of proof that this should never have happened in, happened in, in the first place? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be a bit bold. I'll let Alex come in in a minute. There was a great blog. Again, we've, we've talked about this chat before. David Allen Green, uh, who's been blogging on Brexit for the, for the FT since all of this uh, sort of got going last, last January. Um, and he says his position, he used to work for, I can't remember which Conservative MP in the research agency, he's been a, a kind of a, a, a Eurosceptic at least all of his life, and mm-hmm. he's getting sick of being badged a Remainer because he's pointing out some of the difficulties or the you know, negative ways in which government's approaching this. 
so the challenge was, uh, and you know, there's aspects of philosophy that talk to this. There are some decisions that you make in life that are really hard to undo. Not everything you do, you can push a reset button on. And actually, if you if you ever thought at any point that the UK might leave the EU, if that was ever realistic, then actually what you should never have done was sign Maastricht. Maastricht was the point at which the regulatory systems were locked together uh, in a way in which unpicking that was going to get hard. Uh, there were three more treaties after that, each of which just embedded everything more and more deeply. So mm -hmm. I think there is a real point that actually once you'd done Maastricht, kind of the exit was was now no longer feasible um, just because the disentangling is so much harder than, as you said, you know, getting the eggs back out of the cake is considerably harder than making the batter. Um, all right. So I'll move on from that one. Um, a, a, a bit of a legal question here. What about limiting the scope of the ETJ? So we say, yes, we are, we are members, but you may only judge, uh, you may only have jurisdiction on these particular topics. Is, is that even possible? I, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect it is in the sense that it's there and it's up for negotiation. Um, so if, you know, if the negotiation can bring about that kind of thing, fine. But you're, you're still at the point of saying, great, we're out of that jurisdiction, that court, which looks over you know, areas A, F and J. So what is going to? There needs to be something. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking, really, I mean, there are obvious areas where it makes sense, your atoms make sense. You, know, you could say to the, the ECJ, if this is how it works, well, you may have jurisdiction over our, our, our participation in this thing, but you may not have participation, uh, you might not have jurisdiction over, oh, prisoners' voting rights. Yeah. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, I think... I th I think I, I wouldn't rule anything like that, and I think anything is possible through the negotiations. Obviously, there's going to have to be compromise on both sides but I think if we just go back to the last question that you asked and yes wh please whether hard levers would, would see all this as a, a perhaps re a reason why the, none of this should have, should have happened I mean it really depends on how much of a hard lever you are and I think particularly people like Nigel Farage will, will never concede that this should should never have happened um, but I, I think that it's I think it's totally uh, understandable to think that we should still be going ahead with this thing and that we should not be part of the EU it's just that the hard levers think that the EU is kind of inherently evil and that we should remove ourselves from it as much as is, is physically possible. Whereas I think there's a more moderate position that perhaps we shouldn't be in, in the EU, um, but there are you know, enormous aspects of it where there it would just be pointless for us to drag ourselves away. Um, and you can perhaps go back to, a, a, in the broadest sense, the whole separation between the political union and then kind of everything else. Um, there are ways by which we can remove ourselves from ma a majority of the political aspects of the EU, but uh, in in all in, in many other areas, it's it's very easy to uh, to argue that there is no point really in uh, kind of uh, pulling ourselves away. So, I mean, again, we can go back to countries like Norway or Switzerland that are still integrated with the EU in many ways and still cooperate on things like um, you know Euratom and medicines and things like this, uh, but they are removed from uh, a majority of the political aspect of the EU. And so it depends really on how much of a hard lever you are. Um, and I think, obviously, there are, there are going to be people who will never concede that this should never have been done and basically believe that Brexit is, is the end and it doesn't is the end and it doesn't really matter how we get there as long as we do get there. Um, you know, they would argue that it's, it's worth it. But I think there's a much more moderate position and I, I totally understand the position that 
we still should do this and technically we, sh we should still find ourselves in a better position outside but there are many, many aspects of it where it would just be a pointless waste of time for us to separate ourselves. And I do wonder as well if this sort of suggestion of you know, limited powers of, for, for the ECJ over certain things comes under the European Union definition of cherry-picking the things that you want and thing, things that you don't want. You're either, in or, you're either in or you're out. I think so. And you know, this, this constant challenge in all EU negotiations, which is nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, Mm. means it becomes increasingly hard to work out what the end point is because it, it might look like we've got agreements on something in you know month four of the negotiations but actually until the final signature is on the final paper you've not got anything um, you know the de this is the way the EU has always negotiated um, it's a core principle in the way in the way it designs its uh, its treaty negotiations um, it's yeah I think I just sort of you know, pick up on Alex's stuff for me it's a, it is about that why we, we've, we're doing this without an understanding of why. You know, the why is to leave the EU, which, which for me isn't a why. It's like you know, it's it will be a very, very, very poor thing to see in a corporate business strategy. We want to do X. What you actually do is you want to do X to do yes something else. Leaving the EU is the process bit mm -hmm. to enable you to do something. Now nobody has yet really managed to to catalyze what that something is. Mm -hmm. Which means essentially you're going through a, you know, it's the equivalent of going through a full-blown business transformation process without any idea of why you're doing it. Yeah. Uh, oh, we want to restructure. Well, for, for, well, for the, to do what? Well, for, yeah. the, well, for <laughs> the sake of restructuring, of course. Yeah, exactly. And that's the day, you know, it's not a bad analogy, I think. Um, so we've not got that, which means we don't know which bits are worth staying in and which bits aren't because we don't actually know what we want to do with all of this. Um, and it's, yeah, the, you know, the fear from my side, I think, is, is, is the EU has very quickly positioned what it wants out of all this. Mm -hmm. It's got the end point. It, got, it's, it knows the end point it wants. Um, but I'm not, I'm not see, sure we do. I'm not, just because they've, writ they've written it down and they've got, got a website and a few files, I'm not entirely sure that I buy that argument because you, know, you think of this issue here and the UK will leave your atom. But what is the EU position on, on this? I mean, surely they would quite like the UK to stay or at least contribute because, as Alex mentioned before, they're world leaders. Just because they've written it down doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that they've got as clear an idea as, may, as maybe we think. No, I, th I think actually you make a valid point. So I'll, I'll row back a bit on, uh, on, on what I said earlier. Um, they, let, let's instead put it relatively and say we've got a much, much clearer position of what the EU wants to achieve out of this than we yeah. have from our side, that, that's probably a fairer, a fairer statement. I'm happy on that. Um, but it's, it, it's the fact of, you know, it, it, it worries me because it feels like we are way, way behind in all this. Mm -hmm. you know, we're the small negotiating partner in this anyway, um, going up against the, the rest of the EU27. Um, and it just feels like they, they're ahead in knowing where... Their ability to shape the conversation that happens now is much stronger than ours. Yeah, it's certainly um, been, it's certainly been um, thought... And under their rules. Yeah, that's, that's and, and we've even had acknowledgement in the last few days that they are genuinely concerned about our government's position. Mm -hmm. That actually it is, it looked pretty clear the government has, uh, does not know. There is not a unified position. See, that's I, clear. I, yeah, we'll come um, on to that in a second. And but so the EU is kind of wondering, well, actually, what do, is this even fair? Because what are we going to achieve? But see, I always think about that as well. You know, if you're a bureaucrat and you want to go into a bureaucratic fight, the best thing that you can do is actually tell everyone that the other guys are not particularly good bureaucrats. 
Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, I think actually, I, w- I want to be really clear in all of this. I'm not painting, and I don't want to paint our the UK civil service in a particularly poor light here. Yeah. They're, they're, they're doing some good stuff. But I do worry about the... Well, essentially, we know we have no decision. We know there is no unity, even amongst the top four officers of state in the cabinet, never mind the cabinet or the government or parliament, or indeed the people. I mean, we, you know, it's um, there's just no... There's nothing even close to a, you know, a, a wide and deep consensus of what it is we're trying to achieve. Never mind how we go about it. Yeah, and this this goes back to the point we were making earlier that the government's had to interpret what this vote was about, and they've set us on a course uh, and a particular interpretation of what they thought this referendum was was about and what it was for. And now there is a, a absolute reluctance to step away from that 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 strategy essentially and even as new information comes comes forward and we learn about things like Euratom and all this stuff we've still got the government sticking to the strategy which it, which it attempted to set out you know more than six months ago um, there's there is no kind of uh, sign that they are willing to uh, roll things back or reset their negotiating position or or reconsider their objectives um, as, as we learn more and more about what we're dealing with here and I think that's that's kind of the particularly worrying thing is that we, without all the information at hand, we set ourselves on a particular course. And even as everyone slowly realises perhaps that's not the best way of doing it, the government's still reluctant to kind of uh, change the way that it's approaching this. David Davis in, in particular, um, he was questioned by uh, a, select, a select committee from the House of Lords um, last week, I think. And was it, it basically just came across as stubborn. Um, he, he is not wavering one iota on the stuff that he was saying six months ago. Uh, and I think that's kind of the potentially scary thing, is that we didn't have all the information at the time, and we've made an interpretation of what this vote is about, and it doesn't really feel like anyone is willing to reconsider. Hmm. Let's just roll back a bit, because this is interesting. One of you mentioned that the four main officers of state don't have a consensus as to what they want from Brexit. Do we think this is why there is no overall message? I think that's it. And I think part of that's driven by still the lack of knowledge. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're, we'll go back to our analogy earlier, you're trying to completely restructure a massive company uh, without knowing what that company does uh, or what the teams that are there in place now do mm-hmm. or why. Um, uh, and so it's, it, it, it comes with this vision is actually, is why is the country doing this? Well, and... The democratic mandate stuff is you know, a, a necessary, but I would say not necessarily sufficient thing for that. But why are we doing it? Not the the answer that people wanted, in particularly in something as complex as this, is not is too simple. Yeah. What is it we actually want to achieve? It appears what we want to achieve is well, essentially is sovereignty and control of borders. That appears to be the message. Um, well, it's okay, that's fine. But in a modern internationalist world, like we talked about earlier, the world has moved on and stuff is much more interconnected. Uh, and so there's a place somewhere between the hard remain and hard leave where hopefully there's a bit more understanding, but it's not very clear. So really, I mean, what we're saying is they don't have... It's, it's like the outcome thing. What they should really have is you know, a bit of paper, and on, you know, right in the centre of that paper, it should say, we want the UK to be more internationally competitive. How do we do that? And actually, the answer might be, oh, well, we stay in the EU, in which case they've got a problem that it's again... So they've got to sort of craft the strategy or the strategic goals to match the outcome of the referendum, which yeah. is a fairly unusual way to do things. Whereas now it seems like the entire strategy is based upon we're doing this because it's Brexit and because Brexit means Brexit. And so that's it. It's, 
the only reason that we're doing this is to make Brexit happen. Whereas there's no, as I've said before, it's it's, it's people are seeing it as a a kind of a cure, not a catalyst to, yeah. to better things. And I think the worst thing is within that is people are, people seem to be thinking, and you know, oh, actually, well, outside the EU, we can get a lot more stuff, whatever that whatever that stuff might be, and some of that is true, and some of it isn't. Um, but actually, there's not in, there hasn't certainly been enough focus about what could be lost. Mm. Uh, and people talk about the trade with the EU. And it's like, look, you know, for a bog standard um, trading goods deal, there will be one. The, the sheer economic rationale and, and, and uh, reality, something will pop out of that. It's all the slightly more disconnected stuff. It is the Euratom stuff. It's the Open Skies Agreement between the EU and the US. It's the it's the bilateral treaties between the EU and the US. All of these other things where. There are treaties, there are trade treaties, but not trade deals. Mm. All of these things, it, it just feels like the, the risk is without knowing why we're trying to do all this and the big things we really want to achieve, what we're going to do is spend an awful lot of money, vast amounts of money and huge amounts of time just to achieve something that looks like the status quo. Mm. And actually, if without the vision about where you want to go next, the likelihood is that's where it all stops because everyone's just exhausted after 10, 12 years of doing this, you go, okay, we're basically where we were 12 years on, hundreds of billions of pounds later. And at that point, you know, this is one of the you know, reasons that went through my mind as we were you know, getting into all the booths um, last year. But actually, if you're going to spend all that time, all that money to get where you are today, it's not unreasonable to ask the question, why on earth did you bother? Yeah, I think I, I think that's pretty fair. Um, now, I've got a little note here, cabinet splits, we sort of spoke about that already, but just briefly, why is it that it all seems to be coming down on poor Philip Hammond? And that's kind of what has happened over the last week or so. Yeah, uh, so there's been leaks uh, coming from the government that there's been kind of anonymous briefings where um, certain ministers have been potentially talking about Philip Hammond behind his back. Um, and t- for, for me, it's because Philip Hammond is the one, the one person in the Tory party which is kind of sticking his head above the parapet and saying... You know, he, he's questioning the party line and he's questioning, you know, the strategy which, I, as I said, they set, up, set out a long time ago and are very unwilling to deviate from. He seems to be the only one which is willing to question whether they should be deviating from it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said this before the podcast, this, this is representative for me of perhaps an aspect which, again, we, we maybe haven't talked about that much, but is that we've got the return of this kind of the two parties against each other and uh, that rather than Hammond being kind of congratulated perhaps for calling out what may be perceived to be a bad strategy instead he's being called uh, you know disloyal to his party and it's it, it seems to me perhaps that the parties are more interested in looking after the party than they are in perhaps delivering a good brexit outcome for the country um, which is it's it's a difficult thing to see I mean when you read about uh, the the things being said against Hammond and you go to the comment sections you'll see lots of people saying that Hammond needs to be ousted because he's being disloyal to the party now do you think it's Hammond that David Cameron is referring to when he says strap him to a raft and throw him in, into a river I don't, I don't know I, I don't know who don't know when he said that he said that this Sunday he said uh, I think I'd strap him onto a raft no I'd, I'd tie him onto a raft and throw him into a dangerous river which is a weird analogy I've, I've never thought of doing that to anyone <laughs> no, you're right. So yeah, it's, it's a new form of torture, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, I think. I mean, he was. He, Hammond's always been down as, as one of the remainers in cabinet, anyway. Um, that's that sort of his background. But also, kind of as chancellor, I would expect him to be, you know, looking at the argument with some due regard to yeah. economic stability and certainty. It's uh, it's him who'll have to fix any mess, as it were, from the uh, 
any economic fallout. Um, but you're right, he's, I mean, he appears to be the only one, in ca- at least in the senior cabinet post, that's really sticking his head up on a be careful how you do this. I mean, yeah. I mean, do note, it's worth noting he's not questioning the decision. Yeah. At no point has he said this is insane, but mm. he's saying have more regard or indeed have some regard to aspects A, B and C. And the thing is, he's not doing it brilliantly. He's just doing it a hell of a lot more than the others The others are, who, you know, d- who are just being really, really stubborn in, in maintaining that party line and not giving anything away. Um, whereas Hammond just seems a bit more willing to question the strategy. Um, and obviously ministers in the party are, are not liking that he's willing to do that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I guess if you're in charge of the money and it's, and it's going to cost, uh, cost an awful lot, you're right to look after your department. So mm. last, lastly, I just... Be very interested. I mean, I think you, I think some of the comments made today might have given this away to our listeners. But I'd be interested just to know from both of you how you would grade the UK's pro, uh, progress so far. Oh, very, very badly. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't think I could have fathomed before the vote that we would have handled this badly. I mean, lots of people said... You know, lots of people would have voted Remain, essentially, even if they thought that this was worth doing. They didn't have the confidence in our own government to deliver it properly. But I, I'm not sure that anyone could have guessed quite how much of a mess they would make of this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely. Um, it's, you know, as someone who's, you know, my position at the start was, was always, like, it's possible to do this well. Um, it's possible to go about this in a way with, which conflicts, you know, minimum damage throughout is actually able to, you know, open up some interesting talks between... The EU might actually, if you do this well, help to spur the EU to do some of the reforms it need. It clearly needs to do, but finds very difficult politically. Um, all of these things, but it's just a case that you just wouldn't go about it like this. Um, you know, the tone from um, from the UK uh, politicians is is just not the way you'd ever go into any negotiation with anybody. Yeah, it seems like it's just designed to you know the, to the Boris Johnson stuff. I know it was in response to a question at Foreign Office questions. Um, about you know all you know they can go and whistle for their money you know and, you know Barney's, Barney's response was this astonishing kind of calm school teacher line of you know I don't hear any whistling I just hear the clock ticking you know and they're taking it very seriously you know it is now a matter at law that the UK leaves the European Union and all its associated bodies on the 29th of March 2019 that is a matter at law the EU desperately from its side wants to manage collateral damage. Mm. It has been ready to, I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've come back to this, I know, because it's one of my sort of sore points. They've been ready to start the negotiations from the day after the referendum. Um, we're over a year into that process yet, and it is clear we do not have unanimity amongst cabinet, never mind anything wider. Um, so from the EU's point of view, the clock is ticking and we need to move. For but the, yeah, what are we going for? For, the, for this to happen, there is going to need to be compromise, and it's not encouraging at all when the government who's handling the negotiations from our side are totally unwilling to compromise on their own red lines, their own strategy which they set out miles in advance. Um, To me, I I think that perhaps when Theresa May called this election, she was hoping that she she would gain a larger mandate and that the Tories would be able to control Brexit and that I think many people perhaps saw that the Tories were really going to take the reins on this and it was going to be a good thing for the party, but if I was a member of the Tory party now, I would be I'd be worried because I'm, I can't see an outcome where they come out looking good with the current way that they're approaching this. No, I think you're right. I mean, the, the big challenge on this is people said, oh, well, you know, the referendum has got to happen because it's the only way the Tory party will lance this boil that's yep. been eating away at it for 40 years. 
the Tory party is not you know, nothing has been lanced if, <laughs> if, if, if we crash out with no deal which I, again I don't think is, is very likely um, I would imagine that the Tory party will have to rebuild itself perhaps over 20 years it's it's you know reputation on the economy and and all this kind of stuff will be absolutely shot if it screws this up. Um, similarly, if Brexit doesn't happen because we deem that it's not possible and somehow it gets reversed and it doesn't happen again, I think the Tory Party will be in massive trouble and will struggle to get into power for a, for a long time. But then, if Brexit does happen and we manage to come to some sort of compromised agreement with them. Whatever agreement that we come to is surely going to go against all the objectives which the Tory party is currently setting out on. Yes. Like, because I don't see how it's possible for the, the negotiation to go any other way. They're going to have to concede some points. And so with the way that it's approaching it at this moment, with the kind of really stubborn, here's what we want, we're not going to waver whatsoever, I don't see a possible outcome where they can come out looking good. Yeah. Do you know what? Uh, just This is a purely political point, but... If I was, uh, if I was in the Tory party now, if I was in power, I think I would call another election, and kind of hope that I lost it. We'd have twenty months to sort it out. They probably couldn't sort it out. In the meantime, they'd spend two hundred billion on numerous bits and pieces. And by the time it all collapsed, they'd probably be in a, it'd probably be in good shape to win another election. There was always the aspect of whichever party was going to be in power to manage the process was probably going to be torn to pieces by it. Mm-hmm. The, the beast is so large, it will, it will crucify whoever is in power to yeah. do it. Yeah, I mean, you really want um, nothing to do with this. Yeah, and so, yeah, m- maybe the better result was to lose and give it the other side. Maybe, maybe that was the strategy from day one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, well, you can find me at jbeardmore. Uh, gents, where, where can we find you on Twitter? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. And just before we go, have the, uh, have, have the GMCC got anything interesting on the next few weeks? We've got all sorts of events. Our networking events are in, uh, are in full flight at the moment, just as we uh, push up towards the summer break. And uh, a big construction conference that we're all working towards in September. All, the, all details on our website, gmchamber.co.uk forward slash events. Fantastic. And I think we'll be back next week, unless anyone's on leave or on holiday. Uh, all here. We should be back to talk uh, about another optimistic uh, <laughs> set of events occurring in the Brexit process. Until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.